Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the Isle of Faces. You are here again for Storm of Swords, Scraps and Scrolls, a part of Valor Arenas. And I am, of course, Sir Buckley. I'm here in a very sunny, yet still quite cold, England slash Isle of Faces. And it's a pleasure to welcome you back from our little break. I hope everyone enjoyed the rest. And of course, more importantly, I hope you're all keeping well in these difficult times and that the Isle and everyone else in the Aswath fandom is helping you get along with it and maybe providing some distraction or just giving you a break from what's happening out there in the world. Either way, we hope you're well and keeping smart and safe. Now I say we had a little rest, but not really. You guys still had plenty of homework to get going with. I know Aziz and Ashea are still churning stuff out over at History of Westeros on YouTube and over here on the Isle. It wasn't all that quiet, to be honest. We had our patron-only episode come out, and myself and the long-overdue return of Lady Buckley went through our trip to Northern Ireland and Belfast and the official Game of Thrones tour. So for our older listeners who have been with us a bit longer, you get to have Lady Buckley back again. She hasn't been on since uh, Season 8 was on. And for newer listeners, I get to prove I actually do have a wife. Yes, someone like me has a wife. I told you so. Now I have proof. So I hope our patrons have enjoyed that episode. If you'd like a listen... Let me just quickly remind you that it is open to all patrons now from one dollar and up, so you can go and have a look at our Patreon page if you fancy that. On top of that, we had a brand new type of episode come out last week. Last Thursday was our first Sporkle Spectacular, the first of ten, in which I go head-to-head with a guest from our beloved fandom, and we take on a set of specific Sporkle quizzes. In this case, it was the opening sentences for every chapter in A Game of Thrones. Could we guess which POV character they belonged to? So this is the first episode. I was lucky enough to have Vanessa Cole, Isla Faces alumni. I'm sure you've all listened to her full episode from back in the day. Vanessa was kind enough to return and, yeah, test our brains and see if we knew the opening sentences for Game of Thrones. It was tough. I'm not going to lie. There were more than a few quite dodgy calls. Well, I was not sure what was going to happen. I won't spoil the result. Go and have a listen if you haven't already. Very excited about these new quizzes. Not only because we get great guests on, but it's just a good way to get you guys involved, especially in the current climate. So if you haven't had a listen, please do go and have a look at your feed. Sporkle Spectacular. Please do have a look at the quiz itself. The link is in there. Maybe play along with us. If you ever listen to Radio Restros' trivia episodes, it's basically the same kind of format as that. You can play along while you listen, you can go and have a look at the quiz yourself. But let us know. Get involved. Please do retweet and share. We'd really like to get this spreading through the fandom. And it's just nice to have a, another episode in the feed and yet more Isle of Faces for you to listen to. I know some of you have requested it. So, yeah, hope you enjoy. Let us know how you think me and Vanessa did. And I can tell you now that the next episode is coming this Thursday so if you're listening to this on Tuesday you've only two days to wait or it will already be with patrons by that time get a few days early for our patron listeners of course and this week it will be the closing sentences of a Game of Thrones which I can tell you now is way way harder but I'll also tell you now our special guest for this episode will be San Rixian famous a Song of Ice and Fire artist and designer and very well known throughout the fandom, obviously, because she's got a lot of really cool stuff out there. I'm sure you all know her from cons. She's on YouTube a lot. And yeah, that's in the books. That's all recorded. So that will be with you this coming Thursday. Hope you look forward to that. Make sure you download and share that as well. Get your scores in again. And yeah, let's just keep it going. It's going to be a really fun time on the other face. It's just a new type of episode for us. Okay. And while I'm speaking of patrons and the such, 
let me let me say a warm thank you to all our patrons for your continued generosity we have some newbies this week thank you so much i would like to specifically thank lady raj mistress of horse keep that name coming and archmaster june healer of the lesser poxes we are in dire need of your help at the moment thank you one and all i hope you enjoy being part of our community we certainly like having you here and we hope to welcome some more so yeah check out our patron page if you fancy helping to support the other faces let's move on before we get to today's chapters way 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 back we had pear pick yes before the break cast your minds back we had uncle off 2020 benjamin stark versus brendan tully it was a doozy the end result i'm going to keep back who you actually picked this time until the end i'm going to keep you on tentooks for a bit longer but i'll tell you that the margin of victory was wire thin end result of 54.1 percent to the winner 45.9 to the loser easily our closest margin Normally these are a bit of a runaway, if I'm honest, these pair picks, but this one, not so. Obviously very tough, definitely tough for me. Like I say, easily our closest margin, but more importantly, we had a total of 532 votes this time. That blows our previous high out of the water. I think our previous was something like 200, somewhere around there. So massive thank you to all who shared, all who voted, obviously, and especially to Davos Fingers, who got all their vote-mad followers involved from A Song of Madness. But... What did the people think? This time there were too far too many responses to read them all out, although they are all appreciated, of course. But here's just a few before I actually get to revealing the result. And Michael of Clark says, Oh, this is a good one. While Brynden would be great post-Storm of Swords, I feel like he wouldn't get much more than anti-Lannister and maybe whatever his past with Hoster was. Ben, though. Ben would have thoughts of bringing his 14-year-old nephew to a place like the Night's Watch and conflicts of being separate from his house any possible info he may have on the watch, its morals, how he deals with the good and bad, the wild things that others, Craster, and possible tension with Sir Alistair and his journey north. So yeah, that's a great cross-section of everything we could get from Benjamin Stark, and there certainly is a lot that's got to be said that probably more unknown from Benjamin Stark. Shakes of Thrones, our old friend, our old guest, Lauren, got involved as well. She said, this is really tough. I've got to go Benjamin though. He knows so much. And yeah, that's the thing. It's a bit like Aemon. There's just too many secrets for Benjen. Who knows what he knows? We don't even know what he knows. That's the thing. But from the other side, we have friend of the show, KW Dent 2. He says, Tully, we have enough Stark POVs. Give me that fish guy. I find myself agreeing with you, Dent. And finally here we have from Raising Demi's Owner. See, I actually don't want a POV with too many secrets. It'd give away the game too early. Blackfish would show us a side of the series we don't really get to see, i.e. Rob in the field. So yeah, that is, that I've got to say, that was a common theme in a lot of the comments, that they don't want Benjen as a POV because they like the mystery. They want to know the, the secrets of Benjen and the North later. They don't want to just hand it to them on a plate. So that's fair enough. Thank you for all your comments. It was wonderful, but I think it's time we get to the result. Drum roll, please, with our closest margin of victory ever, Brynden versus Benjen. And the winner is Benjen Stark. He takes it. He pips at the finish line. He is your new POV character. Congratulations, everybody who voted for him. So yeah, good old pair pick, our best pair pick yet. And I think that's probably a good time to take a, a break from pair pick, just for a week probably, because next week, if I'm honest, it's going to be a pretty big show. I'm not sure we're going to have time to talk about pair pick because we've not only got six chapters instead of our normal five next week, but it is the big one. It is the one we don't want to talk about. Certainly, I don't want to talk about. I think you know what I mean, but we'll get to that later. We've got another five to get through here today instead. So let me remind you of what we're doing here before the bad times come next week. Today we have Aya 8, her last chapter with the Brotherhood. We have Jamie 6. There's a bear there. That's all I need to tell you about that one. 
Catlin 5, where we wave farewell to River Run. We have our midway point, which will come with a shout out, which we'll get to later. We have Samwell 3, where we return to White Tree. And we have Iron 9, where there's a big old river and there's Sandalk again as well. But that's for later. We've got two Iron bookends, but let's get to the first one. We'll begin with Iron 8. After heavy hints last time out, Aya's time with the Brotherhood, a little protective bubble that has given her protection, food, and, to be honest, the best she's had it since leaving King's Landing, now finally bursts, throwing her back into the larger game she's been away from for so long. Not only does it force her into close contact with a man that represents complete injustice and evil to her in Sandog again, it throws her into the very worst moment of her family's history, which, like I say, is unfortunately coming next week. We can dream what might have become of Aya had she stayed with the Brotherhood until after the Red Wedding, but as it is, her path to Essos and a true exile begins with the end of this here chapter. But before that, we get our last gasp of poor Beric and one more trip to High Heart just to really drive in the bad foreshadowing vibe. Lots of that this week. In fact, this chapter packs in more than almost any previous Aya chapter within Storm. There's not only Beric's condition, but there's Forrest's backstory, a bit more Dornish flavour to go along with Oberyn from last time out, as well as some heavy stuff about both sides of the wheel being equally crushing with Hoster Tully's history. So let's get down to it. This idea of heading back to something I have seen before is struck straight in the first paragraph when she recognises that they are coming back to High Heart. People coming back to things will be a major theme in today's chapter, so just keep an eye out for that. And once she's up on top of the hill, she's already thinking about ghosts, which is fitting considering what's about to become of her family and what we consider Beric to truly be given his speech in this chapter. But our first quote from today actually comes from Foros. I had a gift for tongues though, and when I gazed into the flames, well from time to time I saw things. Even so, I was more bothered than I was worth, so he sent me finally to King's Landing to bring the Lord's Light to seven besotted Westeros. King Ares so loved fire it was thought he might make a convert. Alas, his pyromancers knew better tricks than I did. Alas alarm. Even Forrest is getting in in the alas alarm. So first we get more Forrest backstory and it's really a gathering of confirmations for things we've already been discussing. The most important is that Forrest did see visions back in his past before Daenerys woke the dragons. When Forrest became powerful enough to really get good visions has been a big conversation topic in our past few episodes so this is pretty interesting. Though I think we can all agree Forrest's visions improved in frequency, clarity and importance once he started hanging around with Beric. As we asked before, is that because of Daenerys or because Forrest actually found something to care about and he actually found a bit of self-worth along the way? As of many things, it seems there was a small amount of basic magic in the world and Daenerys has done something more like throwing oil on the fire instead of inventing flame all over again. It's also very interesting to see that Forrest was sent over to try and convert Ares. The mind boggles about what, what could have been if Forrest had arrived before Ares got in with the pyromancers because the Mad King probably would have leapt at bringing Relor to town. Again, it gets me thinking of Melisandre and the nature of her own coming to Westeros. It would seem she came of her own volition to Stannis. So how much of a percentage was her decision about conversion? How much about believing Stannis to be his or high? Why does she get to decide where to go while Forrest is being sent somewhere? Perhaps his simple seniority. But there's always the chance that Melisandre is working slightly outside the lines here, something that I've always personally suspected. We also get some confirmation on what we said a few episodes back about the temptations of King's Landing and Robert's friendship being corruptive to the soul. Forrest mentions he was an eighth son, or at least an eighth child, and I, I'm sorry but I can't let the opportunity pass to point out that on the Discworld, our beloved Discworld from Sir Terry Pratchett, eighth sons of eighth sons turn out to be wizards. 
So I'm going to go ahead and assume that Forrest's dad was also an eighth son. That's canon. You can book it. And before all of that, before Forrest's little speech there, we get Aya trying to stare into the fire, the same as Davos did back in his cell. So that's a nice connection between two of our heroes there. So Forrest is in fairly high spirits, but Beric comes along to show he is most definitely not. Here's our second quote. Fire consumes. Lord Beric stood behind them, and there was something in his voice that silenced Forrest at once. It consumes, and when it is done, there is nothing left. Nothing. Beric, sweet friend. The priest touched the lightning lord on the forearm. What are you saying? Nothing I have not said before. Six times for us. Six times is too many. So I don't think Beric's mindset needs to really be described here. I think you could probably pick that up from the quote. Clearly, this links heavily with what we have heard from him in the previous Aya chapter about how he feels empty and ghost-like. This idea of fire consuming speaks to a larger theme of the series, the idea that magic is a sword without a hilt, the idea that though the dragons are powerful weapons and possible saviours against the others, they are also, by nature, destructive forces who will bring much misery to the world. But Beric's large message is that he personally is being hollowed out, that there's not much of him left. It's setting up the decision we never get to see, to pass his fire onto Catelyn's body in the not-too-distant future. That also makes it complicated. On the surface, we can look at Beric's sacrifice as a noble gesture to bring back the wife of the man who first gave him his great charge and a woman whose house is supposed to protect the people that he protects. But given his feelings here, is he passing on a life or a curse? Clearly, he wants out of this deal and he feels embittered about the whole setup, however well it's doing for everyone. We can make a lot of similarities between others who feel like positions of power have hollowed them out, but really, it's a different setup for poor Beric, who plays even more on our heartstrings here. And six too many is obviously a link to the idea of seven that we see repeating over and over throughout this series, and another hint that Beric's seventh death is the final. Perhaps that is simply the maximum a soul can take. We should ask Lord Voldemort, he might be able to tell us. And yet again, all of this, it gives us more questions for the future. Is this how Lady Stoneheart feels too, or does it matter that she was only brought back once? Is this how John will feel? And how important is it that John himself is already half-fired? Does that make a difference? Will the fires of Melisandre consume Stannis as a person? And so on and so forth, we could ask these kind of questions all day. But that excerpt is over quick as a flash as we are reunited with the Ghost of High Heart, and this time Aya gets to go and watch the Midnight Party. The ghost theme continues when Aya links the red eyes of this ghost to the one of Jon's direwolf. Considering Melisandre also matches eyes with ghost, we get yet more questions about connections of those with powers and red eyes. Now the old woman, she names Beric Lord of Corpses, a name he obviously dislikes, but is another connection to John. After all, if anyone has an opportunity to become Lord of Corpses after being brought back, it's John, with all those thousands of whites coming his way. And there are plenty of theories out there if you care to read them about John himself becoming involved with the other's side of things. So that name could be fitting by the end of the series, we don't know. When the Ghost of High Heart gets going with her visions, we get a whole avalanche of important stuff. Firstly, there's the news of Balon Greyjoy's death. Now this is the first time we hear of such in the text, so we don't know whether to believe her or not. The only hint we have so far is Stannis throwing a leech into the fire. But then she mentions Hosta Tully has died, which we do know to be true. So suddenly we have to take the Balon news a lot more seriously. And if that has come true, well then this is a very effective way to get first time readers worried about Rob and hopeful about Joffrey. The news of Balon's death would be most welcome, you'd think but all the foreshadowing about Rob really robs us, and there's no pun intended there, I promise you, really robs us of any joy. Aya shows off her own perceptiveness when the ghost tells a Vargo hope back in Harrowhall, and Aya guesses it means Gregor Cagain is heading there. Again, first-time readers don't know the truth of that just yet, but we do know Vargo is there, so credibility is high once more, which isn't good news when the ghost turns to the fate of House Stark, and here's her quote. 
I'm going to refrain from doing my little old lady voice. I'm going to just keep my uh, turn-up talk for now. I dreamt a wolf howling in the rain, but no one heard his grief, the dwarf woman was saying. I dreamt such a clangor, I thought my head might burst, drums and horns and pipes and screams, but the saddest sound was the little bells. I dreamt of a maid at a feast with purple serpents in her hair, venom dripping from their fangs, and later I dreamt that maid again, slaying a savage giant in a castle built of snow. She turned her head sharply and smiled through the gloom, right at Aya. You cannot hide from me, child. Come closer now. For first-time readers, this is actually the most confusing part of all the prophecies, probably. Yes, we can make the connection between a male wolf and the males of House Stark, or their direwolves, but we don't yet know what that actually means. And though her next sentence is so retroactively, obviously, the Red Wedding, you can make an argument that this howling wolf she mentions isn't Greywind as we might think initially. After all, he is heard by everyone at the Red Wedding, most notably by Catelyn. So is this one where no one hears his grief? Is that supposed to be Ghost crying up above the wall because he misses John? No one hears him, after all. Or Bran and Summer have just been in a big rainy storm up north? Or perhaps we were right all along, and this is meant to symbolise Rob and Greywind's upcoming grief. As for horns and drums and pipes and screams, this would have been complete confusion for first-time readers, because this sounds much more like a description of a battle than a wedding, which, of course, the Red Wedding will sort of turn into. But even if anyone is sharp enough to connect that with the coming wedding of the twins, there's no basis for the sad little bells. The biggest connection we have at the moment for little bells are the ones in Daenerys's hair. So for all George's strong foreshadowing, he also tries to throw people off the scent a bit here at the cliff edge. But that's all from a first-timer perspective. For the rereaders, the mere mention of drums is enough to take us back to Catelyn 7, the dreaded chapter, reminding us of the pain we're about to feel next week and how close we really are to suffering all over again. Yes, we're a week away. Yeah, prepare yourselves. Perhaps the most analysed part of this chapter comes with the maid section of the dream, because that is the one part that hasn't come to fruition yet, as far as we know anyway. There's an outside chance that eagle-eyed first-timer connects maid with Sansa, but there's quite a stretch from seeing that to guessing the purple wedding. But clearly the part the fandom attaches to is the slaying the giant in a cast of snow. We would assume this to be part of Sansa's taking down of Peter Baelish, or possibly Sweet Robin's doll, but that's much more boring. And that's all odd, considering we've seen Sansa build her mini cast of snow later in the book at the Eyrie, and in a larger sense, we've seen Sansa and Littlefinger leave the castle of snow that the Eyrie becomes. So what does this mean for the future? Is this still to pass? Does castle of snow actually mean Winterfell? Could, could well be. That's something I subscribe to, Peter Baelish going down to Winterfell, but I've written about that in the past. I won't bother you with it now. Either way, the Littlefinger part is the outlier of the visions, as the rest are clearly connected to Melisandre's leeches. The attentive rereader will see the ghost tells of the deaths of Balon, Rob, and Joffrey. So are her dreams picking up the ripples of Stannis' blood curse emanating from Dragonstone, or is she merely seeing these visions because they were bound to happen anyway, and Mel got lucky? We could spend a long time trying to figure such out. By the by, the mention of the maid gets me thinking there's a representative of each of the seven present, kind of, for these visions. We've got the mother in Catelyn's death being foreseen. We have the maid in Sansa at the Purple Wedding. We have the crone in the Ghost of High Heart herself. There's the warrior in Aya, or Lem, but we clearly prefer Aya. The smith in Gendry, he's somewhere on the, on the periphery here. The stranger in Beric. And all we're really missing is the father, unless we want to count Balon or Hoster. So that's quite interesting there. Regardless, after laying out the dark fortunes of House Stark, it's fitting that the ghost chooses that moment to recognise a house member stood there watching and overhearing. Unfortunately, it's not a happy meeting, as the ghost tells of Aya's inarguable connection with death, one even stronger than a man who has died six times, apparently. Again, this makes it a great chapter to look back on, because even with all we know of her time in Bravos, surely Aya has not reached the levels that the ghost is telling of here. But all that is followed up with the information that Catelyn will soon be heading to the twins, which we do know to be true, so again, credibility is lended. Here's another quote. The same song as before, he asked. 
Oh I, my Jenny song. Is there another? So this might be the best case of the show really adding an element into part of the books. Because who can read this and not hear the famous tune from season 8 now? I certainly can't. Once they leave High Heart, there is some extended talking about the heavy rain, and this is going to be a constant throughout this whole section of the book as autumn comes in force. It's raining when Catelyn and Rob go to the twins. It's raining at the Red Wedding, I think. I will later come across the swollen trident, and really it's just going to be a constant. We're entering a new stage of the overall series here, to be sure. From there, I has a bit of a out-of-the-blue conversation with Edric Ned Dane, who has received very little attention thus far, other than Aya double-taking at his name and being jealous of him during the attack of the Sceptre. Firstly, it's useful for George to sneak in some Dane details so quickly after we met the rest of the Dornish Interiors last chapter, although note that the Danes did not have a representative in Oberyn's bunch over there at King's Landing. Ned is shown to be unlike most Dornish with his pale blonde hair and eyes so blue they were almost purple. And eye colour watching is something that's going to be more and more prominent as we go. And I think as he's got to my note about Aya being uh, shocked a bit that Ned has not killed anyone and how that shoves her towards thinking about her own killings and, and that kind of guilt about going home again. So we'll, we'll move past that point and leave that to Aziz. The meat of the conversation with Ned is twofold. Half of it is about John, and half of it is about Eddard Stark. Before we get to either of them, we find out that Beric's forgotten fiancé is Ned's aunt, Illyria Dane. I think I'm saying that right. Of whom we know next to nothing, save her being Arthur and Ashara Dane's younger sister, and presumably being the last of that Dane generation. I know we've spoken about this previously back in the day, but it's worth asking again. Why would a Dondarian be betrothed to a Dane? The Dondarians are marched lords and have spent most of their history fighting against the Dornish. Now in fairness, it's likely rare that they ever came into contact with the Danes given that Starfall is on the far west of Dorne on the Reach border, while Blackhaven, home of the Dondarians, is smack in the middle of the northern border with the Stormlands. So perhaps there's no particular hatred between these specific houses, but in terms of national pride, it's an odd one. We don't generally see any of the Dornish nobility making matches with the rest of the Seven Kingdoms anyway, given their seclusion, so it's questionable all round. Then again, House Dane does not fall into the typical Dornish category given their history, and perhaps this is just an effort to make peace between two historical enemies, even if we've seen little evidence of anyone else doing the same. Anyway, John comes up when Ned reveals the name of John's supposed mother, Wyler. And what a blast on the past that is. We haven't heard this name since Eddard II of Game of Thrones, and it's being dragged up now. Combine that with yet more talk of the turning of Harrenhal in a second, and it becomes clear that George really, really wants us to start thinking about Jon Snow's parentage again in this book. It's like we're getting a great big reminder of all the clues first available to us back in Game of Thrones. Putting aside the rest, it also sounds to me like Wyler is still alive. She served us for years, says Ned, so here's hoping we get to meet her if we ever finally make our way down to Starfall. Again, let's hope for that as well. There's a lot of fodder for theory basing and question asking here, because any connection we can make between John and House Dane, even if it's merely a connection of Milk Brothers, is fun for everyone. What's funny about Ned Dane though is that he unknowingly supplies us with information on not just one potential John mum, but two when he starts talking about his aunt Ashara. Clearly Ned believes Wyler to be the mother in question, but having both ladies present seems like another boomerang moment when we are transported all the way back to Catelyn 2 of Game of Thrones, where Catelyn deliberates on the very same subject. Is it Wyler? Is it Ashara? Who knows? So again, we have a rather obvious case of George trying to reignite those same questions. Harwin takes up the tale of Ashara a few paragraphs later, and we can really see George's hints and incremental storytelling be shown off as first-time readers begin to make the links between what Harwin is saying and what Mira told Bran a little while back. People far more talented than I have looked at Ashara Dane and the mysteries of the meeting, so I won't care to repeat that it absolutely has us asking questions about Eddard, John and all of House Dane. Clearly, George wants their importance to remain in our minds and definitely not take Harwin's advice to let it lie, however dead they all are.
Before we move on to a different subject, let's take note of the effect of this conversation on both Aya and Gendry. For Aya, there is yet more upset for her. First is having her father's honour abused or questioned, as well as the very relatable part of growing up where she realises she did not know everything about her parent. And of course it's worse for her because the chances of hearing from the man himself are unfortunately zero. That's emotional enough, but there's also the distancing of her and John, just at the same time she imagines how good it would be to actually see him. It's something else we can see a lot between real-life half-siblings. When first broaching the parenthood of the other, it can be a form of disassociation, because Aya, of all the Stark children, probably cared about John's parenthood the least. He was just John, her favourite brother. To discover his ties might be all the way down in Dawn, as opposite to the North and Winterfells you can get, is just another thing that makes Aya feel worse and more frustrated. Which is exactly how Gendry feels. Not only does he bubble over again with yet another noble to deal with, it might be the fact that this is one who seems to be friendly with Aya, we should not ignore. Gendry is smart enough to realise that Ned could be betrothed to Aya, but Gendry never could. And while we're not saying that's specifically what Gendry wants, the fact that he can't because of his birth is what irks him. Here's a quote from him. Gendry ignored that. At least your father raised his bastard. Not like mine. I don't even know my father's name. Some smelly drunk, I'd wager. Like the others my mother dragged home from the alehouse. Whenever she got mad at me, she'd say, If your father was here, he'd beat you bloody. That's all I know of him, he spat. Well, if he was here now, might be I'd beat him bloody. But he's dead, I figure, and your father's dead too. So what does it matter who he lay with? We can see Gendry's frustrations relating back to his unresolved anger with an absent father figure. And the irony bells are nearly fit to burst here. Because Gendry's right, his father was a drunk, and he was a man who beat his children. Hmm, Joffrey isn't Gendry, but that's not wallpaper over Robert nearly killing his own son. Someone he thinks is his son anyway. And he's correct that his father is dead, even if, in the overall sense, he's completely wrong about everything else. Most importantly, it leads to more friction between Aya and Gendry, another factor in her later decision to come. Hoster Tully returns in the final part of this chapter, as does more memories from the Rebellion. In this case, it's more evidence of small folk suffering because of High Lord Games, perhaps best summed up by the brilliantly named Notch. When Riverrun declared for Robert, Goodbrook stayed loyal to the King, so Lord Tully came down on him with fire and sword. After the Trident, Goodbrook's son made his peace with Robert and Lord Hoster, but that didn't help the dead none. The end of that sentence is what sticks with us most, because okay, it's great that the surviving Goodbrook's made a peace, everything is back to normal, but for the innocent people who lived here, they literally lost their whole lives. It's more fodder for Aya questioning her own roots from her own family, not so long after she's had to hear the crimes of the Karstarks, of her brother's men, and we too get to shine a different light on Hoster Tully post-death, the patriarch of the family we would consider to be the good guys. Even to go back in time, these people died because of loyalty to Ares, and remember, Aya has come across small folk who still swear by the Mad King, and Ares was the bad guy. Did that mean their death was justified? Of course not. The majority of them likely had no opinion either way, it was just their lord's choice. But does that make Hoster evil, or was he compounded by his duty to act? A lot of questions, all difficult, all buried in history. But for I and others, it's the end result of a ruined village that sticks with them. And with Gendry especially, here's another quote from him. A silence fell. Gendry gave Aya a queer look, then turned away to brush his horse. Outside, the rain came down and down. So this is how this friendship ends, really, for the time being, anyway. A friendship that has been through the very worst the world has to offer, and one that kept both participants alive throughout. There's no doubt in my mind that without each other, Gendry and Aya would have never survived the Riverlands Theatre. For Aya, as she will angrily reflect in a moment, Gendry was her last gasp at the idea of a pack. He was the one who stuck with her, who persevered, and if we thought Aya was a loner, an individual who had difficulty interacting with the rest of the world throughout Clash and Storm, is nothing to what we have coming. After the Red Wedding, after Sandor, and after leaving Westeros entirely, Aya will almost completely shut off her emotions and vulnerability, and that really starts here with the separation from Gendry. I believe a great part of our arc to come will be her rediscovering how to connect, but it's sad nonetheless. 
Clearly, Gendry's frustration with nobility and their games is on top here, and it just so happens Aya is the closest representation for him to focus his annoyance on. To close, Rulor goes for strike two against Aya. He already didn't kill Sandork again, and now he's sending Forrest a vision that changes the entire path of her life. My lady, he said, the Lord granted me a view of Riverrun, an island in a sea of fire, it seemed. The flames were leaping lions with long crimson claws, and how they roared. A sea of Lannisters, my lady, Riverrun will soon come under attack. So re-readers know that this is a flash forward to Jamie's A Feast for Crows chapters. So again, we see Forrest being legit. And I actually think it needs to be said that Forrest's visions seem a lot clearer than Melisandre's do. He's pretty much dead on about what's going to happen here. He's just a bit unsure on timing. Unfortunately for Aya, it just means there's more bullshit here. Let's take this. I do not mean to be taken, said Lord Beric. A final word hung unspoken in the air. Alive. They all heard it, even Aya, though it never passed his lip. Still, we dare not go blindly here. I want to know where the armies are, the walls and lions both. Sharna will know something, and Lord Vance's maester will know more. Acorn Hall's not far. Lady Smallwood will shelter us for a time while we send scouts ahead to learn. So Beric's heavy and foreboding opening words aside, we can see how Aya clearly recognises the whole thing as a red tape job. It's a fob-off, it's bureaucratical bullshit. The whole thing just seems so cyclical, so annoying. And we can see how Aya could easily just end up going round and round the Riverlands for years with no actual control over her life. And as she points out, if they hadn't caught her, she probably would have just got home by now, free to suffer the same fate as the rest of her family. No doubt, this will play into her survivor's guilt later on. Thus, Aya makes her big decision to get away from all of it, take control as she once did before, and she runs straight into someone who will allow her less control than everyone minus those at Harrenhal. A new part of Aya's life begins, and the best part for over a year ends, as does our time with the Brotherhood, critically. We will return twice more at the end of this book and near the end of Feast. In both cases, the Brotherhood we see will be a much-changed thing. There will be new leadership, new objectives, and new oddly-walked morals. It's a discussion to save for later, but the saviours of the small folk we've been with for the last seven-odd chapters will be gone, as will their leader. I think the Brotherhood are such an important party not just for the fate of the Riverlands, but what George wants to tell us about war, people, and justice. We are not done with them yet, but to this version we must say goodbye, as Aya is kidnapped by Sandok again and galloped off into the night. Now our chapters today are almost exclusively in the Riverlands, so let's just head to a slightly different part of that region as we go for Jamie 6. For a character whom we once recognised as a classic Disney villain, we finally get a classic Disney hero moment as Jamie makes his biggest leap in redemption yet by deciding to go and rescue the girl. Clearly, things are not so clear as that. For one thing, the whole point of Jamie and Brienne is to work outside those normal gender role boxes, and there's the added factor of Jamie really having to cover for a mistake of his own making, however well-intentioned, and he is only able to do so because of regained privilege. Still, Jamie chooses correctly, finally, and we get to see a great moment in the series. Although, the chapter doesn't start out with so nice a vibe. Here's a quote. Jamie was anxious to be gone, to put Harrenhal, the Bloody Mummers, and Brienne of Tarth all behind him. A real woman waited for him in the Red Keep. Okay, we can agree that getting rid of Harrenhal and the Bloody Mummers is a cause for celebration, that's fine. But this is our chapterly, sometimes pagely, reminder that Jamie's improvement is not a straight line, and he still has many of these little hang-ups remaining, despite his recent experiences, and most of them happen to focus around Brienne. And yes, it does say something that she so dominates his mind. Wanting to leave Brienne behind is one thing. Equating her as not a real woman because she is not similar to Cersei is not only cruel and ignorant, it's also flat-out wrong. Now I think as he's got to my note about Steelshanks Walton and what that says about Jamie and his mindset at the moment, so I'll leave that. But what links to Jamie's regaining of privilege, and that being the reason he doesn't worry about anything anymore, is that Jamie is dressed up as a knight once more. He has the sword, he's got the dagger and the shield. Even though he chooses not to display his family's sigil, the point is he's been returned to a life he's always known. 
the identity he had been forced to leave behind with his mutilation and abuse from the mummers. There can be no doubt this plays a large part in the renewed confidence and arrogance we see from him in a second. It's mentioned that Aenys and the phrase departed for the twins three days before Roos. Now, is that supposed to hide that they have been together? I'd need to double check and see if Rob already knew the Fraser at Harrenhal. Someone will have to correct me on that. Either way, Roos has left Harrenhal for Vargo, setting up another opportunity for the ghost of Highheart to be correct, even if Vargo's worst state is yet to come thanks to Brienne. Although it is a downer to note that Brienne gets to mutilate her face here, but will suffer the same fate during the next book, but that's all to come. You will give my warm regards to your father, so long as you give mine to Rob Stark. That I shall. I think as he's got to my note about the misunderstanding factor here between Jamie and the Boltons and what Catelyn will hear at the Red Wedding and everything else and how that's all going to come back in A Feast for Crows and obviously Winds of Winter but like I say as he's got to that and I actually I want to wonder what Jamie is actually meaning here is he being genuine in his respect for the young wolf glad that he got released a subtle way of letting Catelyn know that her plan has worked or is it just a mocking statement who can tell with Jamie? Jamie is also very much like Tyrion in his mocking goodbye to the Mummers, and I like the connection that even though he promises to pay his debts, it'll be Brienne doing the killing for him come Feast for Crows. Although, we should note, Zolo himself, the man who physically took Jamie's hand, is still up for grabs, so maybe Jamie will get that opportunity. Here's another quote from Jamie about this kind of identity thing we've got going here. He would be no one's cousin, no one's enemy, no one's sworn sword. In some, no one. So this is a very interesting contrast to what we said a moment ago about his looking like a knight again, He's gone for the night look, but he's left his identity as a Lannister behind. Okay, he frames that as a logistical choice to stop from being recognised and taken again, but he also argues with Walton that they could skip down the King's Road because there's 200 of them, so that argument is pretty thin in my estimation. I think it's more a fact that Jamie is ready to leave his role as a Lannister behind. It's a theme we are going to see more and more of once he gets back to King's Landing, and focuses more on being a Lord Commander as opposed to Tywin's heir, etc. So I think this is the beginning of that here. And of course... He just so happens to grab the shield that eventually passed to Brienne for her feast quest. It was not his skill with sword and lance that had won him his white cloak, nor any feats of valour he had performed against the Kingswood Brotherhood. Ares had chosen him to spite his father, to rob Lord Tywin of his heir. Jamie doubles down this idea of him associating being Tywin's heir with negative memories. The actual information we get here in this little memory lapse is stuff we've already heard from Jamie's POV in past chapters, but it just goes to show that Jamie simply can't let go of these memories and even in him returning to the identity of Mr. Sword and Lance, there's pain there too. What's interesting and telling of what's to come is that Jamie is choosing the nobler side of his former identity while being tempted by the more uncouth side of things, women-wise. He's already remembered a blushing Miller's daughter smiling at him, and now has a discussion with Kyburn about Pia? Pia? I'm not sure how you pronounce that. I'm going to go with Pia. Coming to his chambers and talking him up as the celebrity, the Disney prince that all the women wanted. Everything she says is the picture he's been used to for so many years, but he refuses to indulge. Because of loyalty to Cersei? Perhaps. But maybe it's because of his new leaning towards becoming Mr. Noble instead of Mr. Sword and Lance. It's the conversation of Kyburn that first presents the conundrum of the chapter, when Jamie discovers that his well-intentioned lies have actually resulted in Brienne not being ransomed and returned home to her father. But because this is Jamie, he goes through several layers of denial instead of admitting he might feel guilty about this turn-up, or even feeling bad about the possible consequences. Here's his quote. If her maiden head's as hard as the rest of her, the goat will break his cock off trying to get in, he jested. Brienne was tough enough to survive a few rapes, Jamie judged, though if she resisted too vigorously, Vargo Hope might start lopping off her hands and feet. And if he does, why should I care? I might still have a hand if she had let me have my cousin's sword without getting stupid. He'd almost taken her leg off himself with that first stroke of his, but after that she had given him more than he wanted. So by way of deflection, we have Jamie trying to make a joke out of Brienne's physique or attitude as he did before, 
He tries to tell himself she'll probably be fine and this is all okay, no need to worry. And then he tries to persuade himself that she actually earned such a fate by getting him captured, obviously ignoring his own part of it, as well as embiggening that cut of his on her leg. Clearly, the news does bother him, even if he tells himself it's Kyburn's company. It'll be a little bit until all this boils over, but the seed is set, and Jamie feels the need to ride ahead and develop an interest in other people's religion just to distract himself from the pre-end news. Said religious conversation actually leads on to Tywin, and rather than examine Jamie's slight retelling of the Rain Tarbeck rebellion, I'd like to focus on his wondering about whether Tywin received the ransom demand, because it's a valid discussion. Did he get it? Did he get it? We don't know. More to the point, did Tywin actually have a legitimate plan for getting Jamie back? Because it sure doesn't seem like it. All things considered, Tywin gets incredibly lucky and gets his favourite son just dropped in his lap through no effort of his own. If Roose hadn't caught him, what was the plan? Just wait for him and Brienne to walk back through the city gates is an interesting thinking point that we really don't have any answers for. Kyburn also reveals another of the problems of people just being handed lordships as Roose did with Vargo. Now Vargo's got all uppity and believes he should be getting a better deal despite everyone else knowing he's just a sellsword and not a true part of the nobility. Petty as it sounds, this is now a life and death distinction. This is important stuff that obviously Roos doesn't really care about. Next up is the second most interesting part of this chapter, Jamie's fever dreams. Here's a quote. Naked and alone he stood, surrounded by enemies, with stone walls all around him pressing close. The rock he knew. He could feel the immense weight of it above his head. He was home. He was home and whole. The fact that this dream is set in, inside the rock is incredibly important in my view. It's the sight of pain, regret and guilt as this dream will come to tell us in a minute. It's Jamie's past. It's the stuff he wants to try and get away from. Yes, I believe the weight of the rock, by which he means the pressure of heirdom, the pressure of what he was forced to do in his house's name back in the rebellion, is as big a factor as anything else here, and it's likely wrapped up with his inner worry that he is not enough now without being whole. He had dreamed that he was maimed, but it wasn't so. Relief made him dizzy. My hand, my good hand. Nothing could hurt him so long as he was whole. So as we said, worries about crushing weights or what happened to Brienne of Tarth don't bother people who are whole, not when they own the power and protection that a whole Jamie does. We've spoken about it in previous chapters, but his ability with a sword is everything to Jamie, the factor above all factors. Simply, nothing else mattered as long as he always had that. So it's just a little bit heart-wrenching to see him naturally dream of what he's lost. Another quote. Your place, the voice echoed. It was a hundred voices, a thousand. The voices of all the Lannisters since Lan the Clever, who'd lived at the dawn of days. But most of all it was his father's voice, and beside Lord Tywin stood his sister, pale and beautiful, a torch burning in her hand. Joffrey was there as well, the sun they'd made together, and behind them a dozen more dark shapes with golden hair. So now we're really getting some evidence for this idea of the pressures of a house as large and powerful as House Lannister can provide for a firstborn son who wants nothing more than his sword. All of what he is, all of what he's supposed to be is speaking to him, right from Lan, Tywin and Cersei. Incidentally, the voices of all the Lannisters since Lan the Clever. Is Jamie actually Ray at the end of Rise of the Skywalker? Seems like it. History mixes with the present as the three current pressures of Jamie are stood right in front of him. He is supposed to be the heir to Tywin. He's supposed to be a lover and a brother to Cersei. He's supposed to be acting like a father to Joffrey. Note that Tyrion isn't present. Why? Because Tyrion doesn't ask anything of Jamie other than to just be himself. But it's when father, sister and son leave that things get real interesting. Although Cersei being the one to hold the flame makes me wonder if this is a hint that Joffrey and Tywin will soon be going cold. Who knows? There's firstly a bit of irony about Tywin saying that he gave Jamie a sword when we know he actually will do that in a few chapters' time. Jamie also spells out what we were saying about his beliefs a second ago. Nothing can hurt me so long as I have a sword. But past that is when the imagery starts getting really beautiful in terms of writing, and another beauty appears in Brienne. The light was so dim that Jamie could scarcely see her, though they stood a scant few feet apart. 
In this light, she could almost be a beauty, he thought. In this light, she could almost be a knight. Brienne's sword took flame as well, burning silvery blue. The darkness retreated a little more. I don't think we need to dig too deep to find the signs the fandom understandably attach themselves to. While Cersei leaves Jaime to die, Brienne comes to fight and protect him. Brienne is keeping the oath she swore, an, impo an important concept for both Jaime and Brienne's future storylines, and of course the beautifully written line that Jaime, in his subconscious, can recognise Brienne as both a beauty and a true knight, is bone-chilling stuff to read. On top of all that, we have fire swords. Given how recently we've seen the same with Beric and Forrest, I think George is making us wonder if there's some kind of relore connection. Jamie has just been asking about religion after all. Or at the very least some magic going on here. But then there is a critical difference in that these flames are burning silvery blue, not the red and orange of Beric. Does that mean anything? Who knows. After talk of bears and wet feet, and I do have to admit I come up short on any ideas about what the water might represent, so I'm open to suggestions. The true enemies, the true doom as Jamie calls them, arrive. The ghosts of the Kingsguard. Though we are nearly thrown for a loop with the armour of snow line that Jamie uses to first describe them, Jamie soon names his deceased brothers and their leader, one that Jamie was sworn to protect, Rhaegar Targaryen. Let's look at the larger picture here. Rhaegar is now being dragged up in Westeros as well as by Daenerys and Yonkai, around the same time we keep getting these stories about the turning of Harrenhal and the idea we should be looking closely at what is going on there. Danny thinking about him is one thing, it's natural, she's his sister, but now he's popping up in Westeros-based chapters. George is really getting pretty clear about what he wants us to be thinking about. I think it's also important to note that Rhaegar appears here because to Jaime, he is the king that should have been. We've discussed in previous chapters about how he eventually found Ares lacking and of Rhaegar hinting that things would change when he returned from the Trident. I think Rhaegar is the boss that Jaime wanted. He's the one he truly wanted to protect, hence his presence here in the dream. He was going to burn the city, Jaime said, to leave Robert only ashes. He was your king, said Darry. You swore to keep him safe, said Went. And the children, them as well, said Prince Lewin. Prince Rhaegar burned with a cold light, now white, now red, now dark. I left my wife and children in your hands. I never thought he'd hurt them. Jamie's sword was burning less brightly now. I was with the king. Killing the king, said Sir Arthur. We know this is simply Jamie's subconscious arguing with himself about the question that has been plaguing him ever since the rebellion. Was it right to break his oaths in order to save everyone else? Clearly, the imaginary Kingsguard take the position it was not, as they did in life, so that Jamie can argue as himself from the position he truly believes in. What was interesting is Rhaegar getting involved and naming the children. Again, this is just Jamie projecting, but it'd be incredibly interesting to know what Rhaegar would have thought of Jamie's eventual decision. But the children part of the vow, I think that truly does still haunt Jamie, that he couldn't save Elliot or the children. And I think that the fact that those kids were presented in a Lannister cloak, a Lannister cloak that he allowed into the city, affected Jamie just as much as it did Ned. There's likely a clue to be found in the fact that Jamie's fire sword gusses out, whereas Brienne continues to burn bright, continues to fight as the dream ends. Of course, upon waking, Jamie realises he has been sleeping on a weirwood stump. As much as you might want to categorise it as a fever dream, this is a oh shit moment for first time readers and an incredibly smug moment for rereaders who have already been through Bran's chapters as part of the weirwood net. I'm sure a good many wonder if this is Bran sending past Jamie visions of guilt as a way for the North to pay Jamie back for his crimes against House Stark. That's not even strictly necessary. The fact is that something so associated with Eddard and the North is what dragged Jamie's true feelings and vulnerability out of him. In fact, if we're reforging that connection between Bran and Jamie, then we shouldn't ignore that Jamie has now joined Bran in being disabled, so it's only natural the two of them have a dream of being whole again. Considering it was Jamie who made Bran so, the connection is obviously strong. Upon waking, we get this quote. Jamie ran his fingers through his hair. Walton, he said, saddle the horses. I want to go back. He's not about to admit it to them or himself, but Jamie doesn't waste time absorbing the message of the dream. Brienne came back for him. Brienne kept to her oath. 
So with a bit of Tyrion smiling and a bit of classic Lannister gold, Jamie persuades him to turn back, and we are finally given the image of the hero tearing towards the evil castle so that he can rescue the maiden. And we get it here with this quote, and Steelshanks and the Northmen were forced to match his pace. Even so, it was midday before they reached the castle on the lake, beneath a darkening sky that threatened rain. The immense walls and five great towers stood black and ominous. It looks so dead. It seems Vargo and the Mummers have the same issues of Jamie in terms of trying to force Brienne into gender roles, or mocking her for not fitting into one at least, because we find she's been thrown in the bear pit with only a gown to wear. So first thing we have to do is give props to Brienne for surviving that long with no armour, and as we'll find out in a second, with a wooden sword. The cruelty of Vargo is on full display here. No armour, a wooden sword, this is an execution, pure and simple. Just one that he and the others can laugh at in their deplorable ways, that's all. This is none of our concerns, Steel Shanks warned Jamie. Lord Bolton said the wench was theirs, to do with as they liked. Her name's Brienne. Jamie descended the steps, past a dozen startled sellswords. Okay, now it's getting juicy. For the entire book so far, Jamie has been referring to Brienne as wench. He did it because he thought she was beneath him, because he wanted to use her gender as an insult, and because he knew it bothered her. But now, when someone else uses it, he defends her. Why? Twofold. Because of that dream where Brienne proved to be a knight, not a wench, and because he knows the destructive power of names. Jamie, my name is Jamie, was a thought in his mind a mere chapter ago, remember. Jamie uses wench himself a few minutes later, but there we go. I'll pay her bloody ransom. Gold, sapphires, whatever you want. Pull her out of there. You want her? Go get her. So he did. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it's swooning time. Join me, won't you, as Jamie goes into action here. Another quote. Kingslayer, he heard Brienne say, astonished. Jamie. He uncoiled, flinging the sand at the bear's face. The bear mauled the air and roared like blazes. What are you doing here? Something stupid. Get behind me. He circled towards her, putting himself between Brienne and the bear. You get behind. I have the sword. A sword with no point and no edge. Get behind me. So I love this exchange. We already see Jamie's bravery charging in with only one hand, but we also get another round of the name game, and Brienne telling us there is absolutely no way she is some helpless maiden who needs rescuing. You can swallow your gender roles. That's not her. I, I love it. Still, Jamie persists, and even when things go bad, he tries to use his final act to protect Brienne from a charging bear. As it is, Old Steelshank saves the day, thanks to that Lannister gold, and we get a satisfying moment of Vargo Hope noting how useful his mummers actually are, and him having to concede. I think Aziz might have got to this, but I'll read you the final quote anyway. Sir Jamie, even in sword pink satin and torn lace, Brienne looked more like a man in a gown than a proper woman. I am grateful, but you were well away. Why come back? A dozen quips came to his mind, each crueler than the one before, but Jamie only shrugged. I dreamed of you, he said. So perhaps this is the most satisfying part of the ending. Jamie has the chance to be cruel, to joke, to bring up his old defensive measures. Instead, he chooses truth and opens himself up to Brienne completely. There we have it, the action part of our Riverlands chapters today and our nice little Disney moment. Let's move on to something not quite so upbeat as we head over to Catelyn 5. Let's begin with this quote. Rob bid farewell to his young queen thrice. Oh boy, let the waterworks begin. Sharp is already raining in this chapter. This is rain on my cheeks. For real though, we reach the beginning of the end, and these final three Catelyn chapters are just going to be a bear to get through. Again, no pun intended. This is Catelyn leaving her beloved home for the final time, a home that has been a desire ever since she captured Tyrion Lannister, the place that she tried so hard to get to, so hard to protect with her politics. It's a place that means so much to her in terms of the fun of her childhood, the relationship with her father both then and now. It's the place she married Ned, the place she gave birth to Rob, and watched him be crowned a king years later. Riverrun is a huge part of Kat's heart, and she's just had to say goodbye, thinking she'll see it again sometime soon, when we know the truth. 
Just as heartbreakingly, she said goodbye to her beloved uncle. The best uncle we ever see, even if we didn't vote for him in Bear Pick. He was the first Tully we saw Callian interact with, someone who's been there whenever she needed and guided her son to some incredible victories in the war. We are lucky in that we will return to Brynden at a later date, but the loss of this relationship is a real tough one, and one that I am desperate to see reunited in Winds of Winter between the Blackfish and Lady Stoneheart. Rob saying goodbye to his clearly loving wife is tough as well, but the main point is this. Re-re-readers know that Catelyn and the others have now begun marching to their own doom, and that's just a weight that's going to press down on us over these final three chapters, one today and of course the final two next week. In his having to be kind to Jane and yet also annoyed, we just see a repeat of all Rob has had to put up with lately, the public face and the responsibilities that continue to contrast with his true feelings. We've seen it in his interactions with Catelyn, with Edmure, with the phrase, it just keeps going. Speaking of, we also get Lame Lothar speaking of Roslyn dancing around singing Lady Roslyn Tully. That certainly doesn't sound like the Roslyn we end up meeting, but does go to show that Lothar can keep up an act for an extended period of time. It had been her who had insisted that Jane remain at Riverrun, when Rob would sooner have kept her by his side. So more fodder for bad blood between Rob and Catelyn, which is so upsetting when we know how little time they have left together. But also, it's the correct call. We learn about the division of the Westlings with everyone else staying at home, and so Reynold, the best Westling of them all, staying by Rob's side. We will come to talk about this again later, but it's good setup for one of the prevailing mysteries of the series. What happened to Sir Reynold after he tried to free Greywind? We'd have to wait until we get there to note his undying loyalty, and rereaders will remember that he knew nothing of the arrangement of Tywin, so that's a big mark in his favour. Which makes it odd to me that it had to be Catelyn who told Jane to stay behind in Riverrun. Sybil Spicer was really content with letting Jane go to a wedding that would be turned into a slaughter? Obviously, there would have been an agreement in place for Jane to be unharmed, but there's still going to be a lot of killing in a confined place, a lot of crossbows aimed at Rob. How easily could Jane have perished in the carnage? As we'll see next week, the phrase, they do kind of make a big deal that Jane isn't there, so I don't know if maybe it was just part of the agreement that they would get her as a captive or whatever else. I guess it is a bonus in um, in Brynden resisting the siege during feasts, so maybe that's the answer. But either way, there's conjecture over how the Red Wedding was supposed to go down and who was supposed to die and how much Sybil Spicer knew, but at the very least it seems she was happy to allow her daughter to watch her beloved husband be killed in front of her. Here's a bit of an aside of this quote. Her son was relieved of his fear for Martin's safety. Galbert Glover was relieved to hear that his brother Robert had been put on a ship at Duskendale. Most of our Riverlands chapters from Catelyn, Jamie, or Aya allow for setup in Feast, as we've already said a bunch of times today. But here we reach forward to Dance and Wyman Mansley's beloved plot when we find out Robert Glover has been released at Duskendale with Rolf Spicer being sent away to exchange Martin Lannister. It's likely a relief to both mother and son. Catelyn believes Rob is safer because Rolf has been sent away, if you recall Greywin. Greywin growled at him previously, so that's obviously a bad note. And Rob might feel he's finally getting somewhere by negotiating with Tywin. But even with this being a chapter focusing on the end of the Northern Cause, we're setting seeds for those who will continue long after, with Robert, Wyman and Davos coming together in dance. Of course, this also goes along with Catelyn having the rug pulled from beneath her feet in a few chapters' time. She believes Rob's safe with Rolf away and Greywind near, and to be fair he is, but Catelyn can't know the fates of a line far beyond her efforts by this point. Another interesting aside. Rob had even created him a new title, Warden of the Southern Marches, so Brynden would hold the trident if any man could. And he certainly does. Brynden is more than deserving of his new title, and I like to believe he still puts full stock in his now official role, not just as a Tully, but a Warden, even after he is forced to abandon Riverrun in Feast. It's part of why I believe he will soon resurface, hopefully, hopefully of the Brotherhood, to protect his homeland. He guarded a gate for ten plus years because it was his duty, and we've already seen the kind of passion he has for home turf. 
The Blackfish will continue the fight for the Trident, we can be sure. Having said that, I wonder what Edmure's response to this was, especially on the back of his previous victories being painted as failures. I don't think we find out his feelings, but one would think the Lord of Riverrun would bear such a title in Rob's new prospective kingdom, no? For what it's worth, this is the one and only time this title was ever used in full, so maybe Brynden just doesn't care what title he has and acts the same regardless. I can certainly see that being true. As he's got to my note on the 3500 men also being on a death march and also the changing of the, the fact that they go back through the Whispering Woods, so I'll leave that note there. You know where to find that over at History of Westeros. I'll move on to the next part here. The glumness settles in during the next section, where Catelyn describes the relentless rain, no one talking to each other, the prospect of being caught between the Lannisters and Greyjoys, don't worry, we'll return to that one in a minute, and how everyone's faith, including her own, currently rests on Rob's shoulders. The mood for these chapters, and that damn rain, is most certainly set. And it's interesting that early on here, Catelyn remembers her first time in bed with Ned so soon after Arya hears about potential other Ned loves of the past. I'm sure her description of Ned as dutiful rather than passionate has spanned many fairy flames about Ned saving his passion for a wild Dornish rather than a dutiful Tully, but that's all for conjecture, who really knows. And again, Aziz's got some more notes here about the Whispering Woods, so I'll leave those out. We get to fast forward five days, but for Catelyn and co, it's slow going as we find out all the rivers are running high and all paths are blocked. Rob even notes that this all gives Roose Bolton more time to get to the twins first, unknowing that it also means everything gets set up all that more secure. Let's just imagine that the rivers were reversed and Roose Bolton had this delay while Rob and Edmure get there at the correct time. Do we think Rold Frey would have the gonads to go through with it alone? Because I don't. Another eight days forward, another eight days of rain. But it all brings us to Old Stones, the once political centre of the Riverlands and now the only remaining memories of a dynasty. Here lies Tristopher, the fourth of his name, king of the rivers and the hills. He died in his hundredth battle when seven Andal kings joined forces against him. The fifth Tristopher was not his equal, and soon the kingdom was lost, and then the castle, and last of all the line. So I think the ominous note we are supposed to draw from this is pretty obvious. Rob and Catelyn are stood on the ancient grave of a first man king, on a line that was defeated, ended, and forgotten despite his success in 99 previous battles. I think we get you, George. Rob is doomed, okay. In case we're not sure of the mood we're supposed to be in, Catelyn really hits us hard with this. We're all just songs in the end, if we are lucky. Ooh, okay, okay bit harsh there Catelyn. Let's also not ignore that Tristopher was a first man king and Rob is a Stark so these connections are only getting stronger at this point. The link isn't lost on Rob because he's now thinking about the end of his line and what should happen to his cause if he falls. Much of this chapter seems to revolve around history lessons and the setting of seeds for later on and there's no better mix than when it comes to Rob's will and his intentions for an heir. Let's begin this quote. Mother, there was a sharpness in Rob's tone. You forget, my father had four sons. Boom, badass line of the week, play the jingle Patrick. We'll get to what Rob's idea actually means in a second, but I'd like to think this is Rob paying back for some of the coldness and emotional abuse John had to suffer through as a child. Rob stood and closed his eyes to Catelyn and John's relationship, as far as we know, even though he is clearly aware of it. Given everything that's happened since, and his belief that his other siblings have died, it's no surprise Rob wants to pay John back and do right by him by not allowing Catelyn's views to influence his decision. If I send the Watch a hundred men in John's place, I'll wager they find some way to release him from his vows. Okay, interesting. How accurate is this statement? Do we think John is released if a hundred men showed up to replace him? It'd certainly be an interesting dilemma for whoever is charging the Night's Watch as it is at the moment. Clearly, they wouldn't want to set a precedent of letting people have their oaths for social favours, that's a dodgy road to go down, and they would definitely have a huff and puff about their pride and how important their oaths are. Then again, a hundred men is a hundred men, especially after the ranging returns with so few survivors. It likely comes down to who is in charge at the time. If it were still Jill Mormont, uh, I could maybe see him accepting even though he put up a fight. 
if it's somewhere close to now when Alistair Fawn and Janos Slint soon come and those guys are running things, I think they likely keep John out of pure spite. Eamon and Donald Noy, yeah, they probably do let John go for 100, maybe. I don't know, that's a real tough question. After John comes, comes Lord Commander, well, you might need to send a 1,000 men then. And we can talk a lot about how John himself would feel. He'd know that however many men Rob sent, John would forever be called deserter behind his back, as well as everything else. Now, I actually ran a poll on this last week to see what you guys thought. Would John be released if 100 men showed up? And again, very close poll. It was 52 to 48 in favour of Oves winning out. They say no, John would not be released. The Night's Watch would keep him. Because again, it's just that really dodgy precedent that, okay, if you're saying there's any reason that Oves can be broken, then you're saying a lot of reasons could exist. So you're just inviting trouble even though they really do need those 100 men. Let's move on. The idea of Rob writing something official for John to inherit is a seed we are still to see grow, as Rob's will has seemingly stalled somewhere in the neck. But surely it will return to importance somewhere along the line, probably after Stannis has dealt with all the Boltons. We don't know for sure that Rob actually does name John, but it's almost definitely confirmed. He's a bit short of options otherwise. We can't blame him for being unwilling to name Aya, given that they've heard nothing of her. And ironically, this probably would have helped out the Boltons in, in dance when they unveiled Jane Poole as fake Aya. And at least he and Catelyn agree it cannot be Sansa, as cool as that is. All of this is going to return to us sooner rather than later, when Jon and Stannis start talking about Jon being made Lord of Winterfell, given that they of course know nothing about Rob's will, ironically. In terms of the history lessons, George uses this opportunity to have Catelyn give some Targaryen history in Aegon IV, and in Blackfire history in terms of the many rebellions. And we can likely see that the Blackfire stuff has really sparked into the narrative of late, as George clearly fought up the idea around this time. Thus, we get yet more seeds for dance in terms of fake Aegon, what Varys is up to, and the Golden Company, etc. etc. Here's another quote. John would never harm a son of mine. No more than Fionn Greyjoy would harm Bran or Rickon. Grey Wind leapt up atop King Tristava's crypt, his teeth bared. Rob's own face was cold. That is as cruel as it is unfair. John is no Fionn. Another badass line from Rob. So, uh-oh, it's pretty hard to defend Catelyn on this one, even for a Catelyn defender such as I. We know her current mindset and how bleak everything seems, but this is definitely one of the crueler things she ever says. It's an important reminder of her greatest flaw and failing, here as her arc is about to conclude. There's no neat little bows for these characters, no 100% morality rating. On the plus side, we do get to see Grey Wind mimic slash feel Rob's own feelings pretty awesomely, and Rob continues to stick up for his dude. I had hoped you would support my choice. I cannot, she said. In all else, Rob, in everything, but not in this. This folly, do not ask it. I don't have to. I'm the king. Rob turned and walked off, Greywind bounding down from the tomb and loping after him. Oh, Rob with the triple threat here, he's just banging out on the badass lines this week. It's great that he's standing up for John, but not great that their relationship continues to be strained in their final days, especially when neither of them has any real issue with the other. Like with Rob's reign, the external factors just keep pulling everyone in different directions. All of it leaves Catelyn alone on a grave, the rain returning, asking why it upsets everyone so much when she speaks her mind. From there we get a quick few lines of Mage and Daisy Mormont, proving definitively that the female side of House Mormont is miles better than the male side, but re-readers know that already. George is simply twisting the knife a bit, as these two characters will be leaving us soon. Mage only disappears into the neck, to be fair, but poor Daisy will be one of the harder deaths to read at the Red Wedding. Day followed day, and still the rain kept falling. All the way up the Blue Fork they rode, past seven streams where the river unravelled into a confusion of rills and brooks, then through Hag's Mire. Okay, remember when we started this book off in the mind of that Czech guy? Also remember that we said later on Rob and Catelyn would pass by his hometown? Well, we were telling the truth, and we've also gone through Thomas Seven's hometown too. It's a reunion all round, but I'm going to guess seven streams was the nicer of the pair, 
as Hagsmeyer sounds absolutely dire. Hope you enjoy my rhyming there. And if that's not enough of a blast on the past, we also have the captain of the ship Fionn originally took to Pike in Clash of Kings, the Miraham. He returns to tell of Balon's death, which is ironic given that Catelyn was already thinking about if Fionn had never made it home earlier in the chapter. So now we know the ghost of Highheart was on the money for at least one count, and if we want to believe, then so was Melisandre. But as fun as it is to see visions and dreams coming true, that means Rob is in major trouble from Stannis' curse. Thus, the atmosphere of this and the surrounding chapters of Catelyn's continues to darken. Here's a couple of quotes from this conversation with the captain. The Iron Men kept me there for more than half a year, they did. King Balon's command. Only, well, the long short of it is, he's dead. Balon Greyjoy, Catelyn's heart skipped a beat. You are telling us that Balon Greyjoy is dead. The captain bobbed his head. Aye, but that's not all of it, no. He leaned forward. The brother's back. The news of Balon is also important for the large aspects of the war. Instead of this being news of the War of Five Kings now going down to three, with Balon joining Renly in death, we hear instead that Euron just so happened to turn up the next day after Balon's fall and insists that he himself is now king. Ignoring the large implications for Rob for a second, this is a pretty major moment that first-time readers probably shrug off as merely interesting. For re-readers, we know we've just received the first hint of one of the series' major villains, possibly the antagonist to the entire living world, getting involved in the game. The word brother being italicised for effect sure makes a lot of sense to rereaders, given all we know of Euron's despicableness, especially if we include the Forsaken. It is a dark day indeed. On the lighter side, Rob shows off his inherited political astuteness yet again by instantly realising that a claim from Euron is going to piss off Asher and Victarion and possibly help his cause out by the Ironborn fracturing or leaving to make their own claim. He shows off his smarts as someone who absorbed information from Fionn in his youth and is now putting it to good use, and all of that leads to some of the first genuine motivation and optimism we've seen from Rob in weeks. Some more quotes. Three hosts will leave the twins, but only two will reach Moat Kaelin. Mine own battle will melt away into the neck to re-emerge on the fever. There are risks. The crowning men should fail you. We will be no worse than before, but they will not fail. My father knew the worth of Howland Reed. And it really is tempting to quote the entirety of Rob's plan. The three-pronged attack, the sneaking through the hidden ways of the neck, the timing and the distractions, the enlisting of the Cranagmen. Rob's unwavering faith in Howland because of his father is a great addition as well. Overall, it's a superb plan, and superb to see Rob put on his battle crown once more. Can't we feel the enthusiasm? It's going to be great. Rob is going to reboost his numbers when he meets up with Bruce Bolton. He's going to enlist a surprise aspect in the Cranagman. He's going to do the unthinkable and take Moat Caelan. It has all the makings of another classic young wolf victory, just like that whispering wood memory we had earlier on. The Blackfish may not be present, but it seems like Rob has taken his lessons of using the terrain to his advantage or attacking from multiple angles. How brilliant would it be to see the Cranagmen emerge from the swamps in force, possibly even with Howland at the helm? Yes, how brilliant it all would have been, if only Rob ever got the opportunity to pull it off. Damn you, George. Then again, we know from Fionn's later chapters that the Ironborn are in no fighting shape whatsoever thanks to the very same Cranagmen, so it seems like Rob would have almost strolled back into the north and not needed this plan at all. Unless those very same Cranagh men are operating on Rob's very commands. Who knows? The timeline is a bit murky on such, but the point is, it's fun to imagine this battle either way. We can picture it. It would have been glorious to see. And again, damn you, George, for taking that away from us. Let's close this chapter here. I left my wife at Riverrun. I want my mother elsewhere. If you keep all your treasures in one purse, you only make it easier for those who would rob you. After the wedding, you shall go to Seaguard. That is my royal command. So we end with the news that Rob dies with more unfinished intentions, in this case the sending of Catelyn to Seaguard. This is a particularly hard moment for Catelyn, her distress is such that she even thinks this might be a petty rebuke for what she said earlier about Jon, but I think we can agree that's not the case. What is much more understandable is that Catelyn notes that other lords already knew and supported the move, 
so there's a real feeling of having the rug pulled out from under her feet or of being ganged up upon. The loneliness is only going to feel worse after this, as well as embarrassment at being the only one unknowing in the room. And like we said earlier, her connection is with Riverman. She wants to be home, not at the sea guard. And as we've seen all throughout this chapter, it's another choppy step on the road of being a mother to a son and a king at the same time. In terms of Rob not keeping his treasures in one purse, it's a sound strategy, and such a shame he doesn't connect these doing the same thing with his own army and the twins. Okay, it's time for our midway section of the podcast today, which means I get to play my new cool music. That's the only reason I have this section. I just really like playing the music. And today, just one shout out, although I am going to slip in another request, another begging for you to go and check out that Sporkle Spectacular episode and the next one when it comes on Thursday. I'd really love it if you guys could get involved. It's a really good opportunity just to take our mind off some of the more serious things plaguing the world at the moment. Please do send in your scores, tweet at me, reply to this, send an email, I don't mind what it is, send a screenshot if you really want. We just want to hear some scores because someone's make sure you're all having fun out there. So please do check it out, I really do implore you. And you get to listen to Vanessa and San Rixion on Thursday and more guests to come. So we're pretty lucky to have those guys, let's make sure we give them due attention. But the main shout out today, just the one, is another resource that we can use to take our minds off things and to, and to really dive into. And this time it's a reddit post by mr brindon Beefish himself now i'm sure you all know mr brindon or jeff as he is better known he is of course one half of the host of not a cast you'll know him from his blog as well and when he's not busy being a super villain and terrorizing us all he's making cool reddit posts and this time well i'll read you the title here it is named down the rabbit hole a cultivated guide to the song of ice and fire theories analyses etc to get lost in while quarantined so we can see the purpose of this Jeff has very kindly given us a huge resource to also distract and put some fun into our lives and just, you know, it's needed and he has supplied. Now, when I say he's included a few theories, there are, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to sit and count them because there's loads, but you just head over to Reddit and of course I'll include the link in the description and when I tweet this out, there are loads, almost anything you could think of. There's meta-analyses about George's writing. There's narrative an- analyses. Is that analyses or analyses? I'm going for analyses. There's political and legal. There's geographical, regional, house, and miscellaneous. There is everything. Character, obviously. And the amount that is there, the quality is there. For most of you, I'm sure, you've read a good chunk of these. And if not, well, I envy you. It's one of those things. If you could go back to not having read them, you would do that just so you could read them all again because there is quality stuff from everyone, from Glass Table Girl, from something like a lawyer, from Bookshelf Stud, from Jeff himself. There's the Miranese Knot essays. There's stuff about the five-year gap. There's theories from the Winds of Winter, from history, Southern Ambitions, famous stuff that I know you've all heard of. You might not have had a chance to actually read. If not, here it is. I cannot imagine that anyone who sees this post isn't bookmarking it or, or making a blood oath with their own laptop to make sure it never goes away because I cannot really overstate the amount of information and good quality content you're getting here. So really, I'm shouting out Jeff and everyone within this essay because like I say, uh, he's pulled it from all areas of the fandom here. It's really good to read. I don't care how much you've read, you're going to find something you haven't read before. I certainly have plenty to make my way through and I would consider myself fairly well read in these theories and analysis and posts before but there's always something so i'm going to say thank you jeff for providing this now of all times it would be amazing at any time but definitely now and i think you all out there should as well so if you get a chance send a thank you to jeff and he will come back with some snarky reply where he tries to pretend that he's evil because we know he is really but yes that is our shout out for this week that was our opportunity to listen to some funky music and you can all go and lose a good year or two reading through all those posts 
Thank you, Jeff, Mr. Brendan Beefish. We salute you. Now, it's well known if you say nice things about Jeff, too often he will come and stop you, so we should probably best move on. And we're now going to take our one trip outside the Riverlands for today as we go north, 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 all the way to Samwell Free. Catelyn and Rob aren't the only ones retracing their steps this week as Sam also returns to an old horn in White Tree, horn being the operative word. Like our chapter a second ago, there's plenty to be glum about, plenty to worry about, but also far, far more to be absolutely terrified about. If this chapter is about anything, it's about how Sam simply can't catch a break. The Fist, an other on the march, a mutiny of the Night's Watch. He's not only survived all that, but somehow managed to save two others in the process, and yet more darkness and terror has to find a way into its life and make Sam the Slayer stand up as a hero yet again in this chapter. White Tree isn't the site of a glorious battle that can help Sam reflect on how things have changed in the past year or so, but it is an incredibly welcome sight. Shelter of any form would be a huge morale boost for Sam and Gilly, given the kind of conditions they are travelling through, especially when we find Sam as being as honourable as we'd expect and walking whilst Gilly rides their one remaining horse. More than the purely physical relief of shelter, there is a mental upswing as well. White Tree is something familiar, one of the first signs of actual civilizations, and a marker that A, they are going the right way, and B, crucially, they are getting nearer to the wall and safety. And that's even with Sam not being 100% on where they actually are. Here's our first quote for this chapter. Maybe he was remembering it wrong. The face carved into the bone-pale trunk was long and sad. Red tears of dried sap leaked from its eyes. Was that how it looked when we came north? Sam couldn't recall. For what it's worth, no one described the face as long and sad. John merely thought of it as huge back in the day when we were at White Tree. Indeed, Sam will convince himself that the tree doesn't look right after all, and that this isn't White Tree at all, breaking his spirit a little further. But is this hunger and sleep deprivation just misting his memories and wits? Have they really wandered into somewhere new? I don't think we ever actually find any definitive evidence one way or the other, but according to the map, White Tree is directly north of the Night Fort and south of Craster's Keep, so it would make sense that this is where they are. I'll let you be the judges, but for now let's just say it's White Tree. And at this point, as he's got to a few of my notes about the extended descriptions of physical toil that Sam is still undergoing and the fact that he's still pushing through that, but more importantly, the effect that Gilly has on him, the focus that she provides, the motivation, the purpose that she provides. But like I say, as he's got to those notes, so you might may well have already heard those. And in fact, actually, now I look at it, as he's got to most of my notes about Gilly and the early praying of Sam to the old gods instead of the seven. So that's good. That's always good fun to see my notes make it in there. So let me skip forward where we can see that Sam and Gilly are sharing the most basic of human dreams and that's what's bringing them together. Neither of them are out to gain a throne or gain vengeance over a foe. They just want what normal people want. And I'll use this quote as, as evidence for that. Could I stand by the fire? Me and the boy? Not for a long time, just till we're good and warm. You can stand by the fire as long as you like. You'll have food and drink too. Hot mulled wine and a bowl of venison stewed of onions and hobs bread right out of the oven. So hot it'll burn your fingers. So like I say, they're only seeking basic human rights, warmth, shelter, food. Sam even gets so bold as to promise singing, which leads Gilly asking for a sovereign song, and her getting her first taste of culture and the world beneath the wall in a far more efficient way than John ever managed of Egret. Oddly enough, this is the only ever mention we get of the Song of the Seven, which is quite striking as you'd figure it'd be pretty popular down in the south, and the amount of time we spend with the small folk in the Riverlands, or in the Sept of Baylor, or in the company of Sept of Maribold, etc, etc, but it never gets brought up again. It's not even mentioned when our various singers list off their favourite songs like The Dornishman's Wife or The Bear and the Maiden Fair. Then again, the Song of the Seven is more like a lullaby than anything bawdy or entertaining, so we likely wouldn't hear it for most of the singers we meet. Still, it is odd. For what it's worth, a couple of notes on this song. The father is described as stern and strong. 
the same description Bran uses for the Stone Kings of Winterfell, who also have to be sitting as the father is in the song. So that's interesting there. I think there's also supposed to be a bit of intended contrast here in that we've just seen Sam shun the Seven in order to pray to the old gods, but here he is singing the song of his youth. Incidentally, his description of singing this to baby Dickon in his cot is pretty much the opposite of the description of Cersei's interactions with Tyrion in the cot. So Sam looks extra good here, Cersei looks extra evil. The song works, putting the baby to sleep, another important if low-key step in the forging of this relationship between Gilly and Sam, and like I mentioned, as he's got most of my notes about that relationship. But Gilly actually surprises me a bit here with news Craster actually bothered telling him some key facts about the South, like the existence of the Seven. Who knew? I wouldn't think Craster would have bothered, but there you go. Now we return to Sam's mind. He wondered what his father would say if he could see him now. I killed one of the others, my lord, he imagined saying. I stabbed him with an obsidian dagger, and my sworn brothers call me Sam the Slayer now. But even in his fancies, Lord Randall only scowled, disbelieving. Sam has already spent a lot of the opening of this chapter thinking back on his siblings, more often than usual, perhaps because of the presence of Gilly's baby, who knows. And of course, he's constantly thinking about his relationship with his father. Specifically, he keeps thinking on how anything nice that Sam did was met with negativity. So here we see him examining the opposite. Would Randall finally be satisfied if Sam was to tell him he's done some not-so-nice things, some things maybe 1% of the population could manage? Luckily, he seems to be aware enough to realise that no, not even that could warm old Randall's heart. So all of that is a fairly nice opening to the, to the chapter, especially considering it's a Sam chapter. We even get a nice dream of happy times where all Sam's friends are back together. They're all warm and they're all fed. It's as wholesome as you can get in this book. And if we know George at all by now, then we should also know that that means the chapter is about to take a big old switcheroo. Here's the quote that indicates that. He woke suddenly in cold and dread. So we've spent enough time with the others by now to already suspect this isn't Sam waking suddenly. It makes me think of the sense of otherworldly danger getting closer, that smell of the cold that others have, all, have spoken of. Yes, it's all been fine so far, but it wasn't that long ago Sam was trudging through a dark forest with men being picked off one by one behind him. Just like that, we're back in horror story mode, and we as readers are smart enough now to expect the worst. It's nothing, he told himself. I'm cold, that's all. Then, by the door, one of the shadows moved. A big one. Oh jeez, we're really into it now, and I defy anyone's pulse not to raise when they get to this passage. It's not enough to wake and find an animal in distress, or see Gilly silently awake, or wake with your hairs already stood on end. Now you are waking and seeing the shadows start moving. It's truly the stuff of nightmares. We'll come to the frankly astounding mysteries of how this all came to be in a moment. For now, let's deal with what physically happens. First off, Small Paul is just about the worst guy you want to see come back as a white. He's bloody huge, he's strong, it's not good news for anyone. It's important that Small Paul is chosen for this moment because Sam knows beyond a doubt he's dead. He saw him die, there's no argument. If this had been someone else from the fist, Sam might have wasted valuable seconds maybe arguing with himself that perhaps this person got away. Oh please, Seven, let this guy have gotten away. But no, it's Paul, and Sam doesn't even need to see the cheek-eating raven to prove he's dead. Sam's bladder let go, and he felt the warmth running down his legs. Giddy, calm the horse and lead her out. You do that. You, she started. I have the knife. The dragonglass dagger. I cannot champion this sentence enough. In a world where Sam wakes and sees a shadow become a dead man, he somehow retains enough of his sanity to tell Gilly to take the horse and go. I'd like to see Randall Bloody Tarly do that. I'd like to see anyone do that, because 99% of us would scream, lose our minds and try to run. Somehow, in this most horrifying of situations, Sam thinks logically of what to do next and how he can best protect Gilly and the baby. Again, I really cannot overstate what an outrageous achievement that is. It's mind-blowing. And he doesn't stop there. He clutched it tight, moving away from the fire, away from Gilly and the babe. Paul? It meant to sound brave, but it came out in a squeak. Sam backed away, knife in hand, snivelling. I am such a coward. 
Don't hurt us, Paul, please. Why would you want to hurt us? I genuinely think this might be one of, if not the, bravest action we see in all of the Song of Ice and Fire. Again, Sam is facing a dead man, a really big one. He has just a single knife and two vulnerable people to protect, with no help coming as far as he knows. Clearly, it's almost certain this will end up with his death, but he does it anyway. This is one of the very best echoes of Ned's advice to Bran about when to be brave, and it makes me want to shout at Sam that no, you are not a coward. Look at what you are doing right now. God's give me courage, Sam prayed. For once, give me a little courage, just long enough for her to get away. And again, it all comes down to Gilly. Sam isn't doing this for Sam, he's doing it for two virtual strangers he's been charged with protecting. When the White looks at Gilly, Sam full-on shouts. He finds his bravery so much so that it launches him into action. And we absolutely must love Sam for this protective and noble spirit he puts on display. First problem. The dragon glass blade not only doesn't work on Paul, it shatters. A big uh-oh moment for both Sam and the reader. Second problem. Sam drops his regular knife too. It seems he is all but done for as small Paul begins twisting at his neck. Sam's prevailing thought is still of Gilly trying to get away. But even more crucially is that even as he is about to die, he still fights on. Here's the proof. His throat felt frozen, his lungs on fire. He punched and pulled at the white's wrists to no avail. He kicked Paul between the legs, uselessly. Sam squirmed and pulled, desperate. And then he lurched forward. Again, cowards don't do stuff like that. We can probably quickly move past the irony of Sam's weight, his most hated feature being what saves his life, because the narrative flows thick and fast after this. Sam has no idea what he's going to do. The reader has no idea what he's going to do. All we know is that a dead man and a live one are resting on the floor to see who survives. It's all chaos, even when Sam spots the fire and manages to smash it into Small Paul's mouth. And it still winds up with Sam thinking he's going to die. It's real nice he uses his last moment to think of his mother, albeit a real shame that Randall also gets a look in. Still, success! Somehow, against all odds, Sam does it. He kills a white. The legend of Sam the Slayer grows. He is alive, gloriously alive. His mission of keeping Gilly and the baby complete, and he goes outside to find... Something much worse. It's a superb change in atmosphere, and as any thriller slash horror fans will know, the abrupt switch from chaotic actions to sudden stillness and quiet can be absolutely terrifying. I think George does some of his very best image painting with this. Giddy, I killed it. Gil she stood with her back against the weirwood, the boy in her arms. The whites were all around her. There were a dozen of them, a score, more. And then later, the starlight itself seemed to stir, and all around them the trees groaned and creaked. Sam Tarly turned the colour of curdled milk, and his eyes went wide as plates. Ravens. They were in the weirwood, hundreds of them, thousands, perched on the bone-white branches, peering between the leaves. He saw their beaks open as they screamed, saw them spread their black wings. Shrieking, flapping, they descended on the whites in angry clouds. Ooh, take a breath. What a beautiful, absolutely mesmerising passage. It isn't enough to find out that after having somehow killed a white, Sam is now faced with a dozen more. It just so happens to be a bunch you wouldn't want to come across if they are still alive as well. Now you also have the eerie, very confusing presence of the ravens up in the weirwood tree. For anyone who has seen the birds, this is just more freak-out material. Yet, when the ravens attack, Sam manages to keep his head on straight and get Gilly to run, even without a horse, even without any real hope. And as if that isn't all enough freakiness, Weegoat was clearly the escape of the book. Brother! The shout cut through the night, through the shrieks of a thousand ravens. Beneath the trees, a man muffled head to heels in mottled blacks and greys sat astride an elk. Here, the rider called. A hood shadowed his face. And then, in a minute, my thanks, he puffed. Only when he grasped the offered hand did he realise that the rider wore no glove. His hand was black and cold, with fingers hard as stone. Okay, I mean, wow. Just wow. This sequence is truly mind-blowing. We get pummeled with Sam waking to discover Small Pool, fighting Small Pool, somehow burning Small Pool, 
going outside to discover yet more whites ready to kill, seeing thousands of ravens looking down from the weirwood tree, shout out to House Blackwood, they obviously knew, realising said ravens are perhaps helping you, or distracting the whites at least, to seeing a weird saviour pop up out of nowhere, and who kind of looks like a black brother of the Night's Watch, to then finding out this guy is dead, undead, weird. It is a hell of a run, and we really need to take a breath and just go back through some of the details we had to gloss over there. This quote's one of the more important from Gilly here. He's come for the babe, Gilly wept. He smells him. A babe fresh born stinks of life. He's come for the life. There are a whole bunch of questions that we really never get answers for, the most prominent of which is, what are the whites doing there? Go back to the map, we are now a real considerable distance from the fist, and evidently this group has come from there, seeing as Chet and the others are part of this group, and they've picked up small Paul along the way. So why have they bothered to come this far, and how have they been able to hone in specifically on Sam and Gilly? Because this is obviously no mere coincidence, they don't just happen to be on the same route and bump into them. They have chased. As for why, Gilly makes the biggest argument. They've come for the baby. They can sense him, track him somehow, and this is what they've come for, explaining why Paul looks to Gilly and doesn't care about Sam. He's not looking at Gilly, he's looking at the baby. So if we accept this for a moment, is this because her son is specifically Craster's child? Is this the others looking for the unpaid part of a pre-made deal? If so, can we make assumptions that the Whites have already visited Craster's on the way? It's certainly possible. Yes, re-readers know that Cold Hands will likely come to kill some of the mutineers in Dance in order to feed Bran, but we know little of the reason why those five are split off on their own. So who really knows? We know so little, I think it's clear. Are the Whites after the child because he's Craster's, or because they want a newborn child and there's only one around? He's come for the life is particularly damning and throws us down all sorts of life-absorbing theories. Would the Whites make use of this life source? Would they carry the boy back to an other? Would it make a difference if it was a girl? Has some unforeseen safety latch been open, opened now because the others are pissed about their Craster arrangement finishing? Again, who knows? On top of that are questions about the Whites' behaviour. They appear to be alone without an other, which okay, we have seen before, but why does only small Paul go into the, the little hut there? Why do the rest just wait outside? And clearly everything is not so clear and simple, as they can't resist killing the horse before moving in on Gilly. It does give a hint about the other's larger formation. Clearly this is not their whole undead army, so I like to think they're little companies of whites moving in and around the haunted forest. I don't think the dead are one conjoined army moving glacially south as one, even if they eventually end up together for a grand attack on the wall. I've always pictured them wandering around everywhere with no kind of rival reason at the moment. Before we move on to our further mysteries, how about a hand for Chet? The longest surviving prologue POV. Kind of. Our emotions are supposed to be mixed up on this subject. It seems so long since we were introduced to Chet's awfulness, and note this is and note this is placed next to a chapter that mentions Hagsmeyer just to get our memories jogging. But now what are we supposed to feel? Chet deserved to die, of course. He was terrible. But he's received a fate literally worse than death. So should we be glad or unsettled? The tough questions. On top of that is the fact that Chet orchestrated murder and mutiny, yet didn't live long enough to actually take part in the one that succeeded. That, and the fact that he's finally reunited with his most hated enemy, Sam. So do we feel Chet's fate is justice? That no one deserves this? Who can say? Either way, good riddance, Chet. On to the next mystery, the Ravens. Clearly, most people have some theories on this that are pretty solidified in the fandom's collective mind, so we don't need to spend too much time on this. Let's firstly imagine being a first-time reader. This is a way bigger question mark back then. What the hell is going on? Why are these Ravens here? Why are they protecting Sam? Are they protecting Sam or the baby? Are they connected to cold hands or not? And if we're being honest, it's not like we have that much more information about this still. And so we end on cold hands. This one we do know more about, thanks to the man with the pen himself. But you can see how at the time, this absolutely did seem like it was Benjamin to the rescue. It certainly would have made a lot of sense. 
but that's enough questions for now there's just too many let's appreciate this chapter for what it was an absolutely brilliant and definitely freezing roller coaster ride who would have guessed at the start that some of the very best physical action in the book would come from a sam chapter so that is quite the step away from the riverlands isn't it i think that chapter really does stand out for all of these ones that we have today but to end we're going back down to the riverlands and back to aya with aya 9 so like i say we come to the second aya book end of the chunk the most different aya chapter we've had in the last nine all things considered it's a short outing and plot wise it doesn't really change anything if george had really wanted he could have cut this out and let us connect the dots in aya 10 more than anything, this is George taking an opportunity to have a chapter far more based around Sandor and who he is than it is anything to do with Aya. And oh look, the rain is back. Like we mentioned earlier, the trident has burst its banks and thrown everything into disarray. So now we make the leap from atmospheric device in Catelyn's chapters to see that, yet again, what might be seen as inconvenience to the high nobility really truly affects the lives of the small folk. It can ruin jobs, take away homes, as, we see, as we'll see in a moment at Lord Haraway's town, or it can even kill. All of this speaks to the sheer cruelty and stupidity of war, and war in autumn of all times. The battles have stopped, but now the people must contend with yet something else that isn't their fault, that they don't deserve, and at the same time, they are just trying to pick up the pieces of their lives. Just one problem after another, and one that will probably be much worse as autumn turns to winter. Here's our first quote for this one. His arms encircled her, on the left the burned arm. He had donned a steel rambrace for protection, but she had seen him change the dressings, and the flesh beneath was still raw and seeping. If the burns pained him though, Sandwalk again gave no hint of it. So the long, slow fall of Sandwalk again continues. It's important to note that Sandor is already badly injured at this point, given what happens later, and he's clearly not on top form. Like I say, that's going to be important to remember later on, but let's also connect it to his past, because even with Sandor experiencing what should be wins, he's finding difficulty at every turn. He managed to escape the Blackwater and the Wildfire, but ended up losing his gold to the Brotherhood. He won a fight for his life against Beric, but he's received a nasty injury for it. I doubt he's eating as well as he's used to, and for at least a good number of years, he's been used to comfy beds in the Red Keep instead of sleeping rough. He's not the kind of man to ever complain about such or use it as a reason for not winning any future fights, but it has an effect whether he wants to admit it or not. He made the right choice to leave Joffrey and the Lannisters, yet he's still suffering. Perhaps we would notice this might be a kind of penance for his past crimes, a necessary step to becoming a different person like another warrior also in the Riverlands at this time. I wonder if Sandor would look at it the same way. I doubt it. She'd waited until she thought he was asleep and found a big jagged rock to smash his ugly head in. Quiet as a shadow, she told herself, as she crept forward towards him. But that wasn't quiet enough. There's a welcome return from the Syrioisms, which have been pretty infrequent in this book so far. We've really only had one or two instances back when Aya first tried to run from the Brotherhood or when she met the ghost of Highheart, and more often or not, she's been mentally directing the idioms to other people rather than herself. Now, back on the road with the Hound, I'm betting we see a much higher usage rate from here on out. Why don't you just kill me like you did Micah, I had screamed at him. He answered by grabbing the front of her tunic and yanking her within an inch of his burned face. The next time you say that name, I'll beat you so bad you'll wish I killed you. Now this is interesting. Threatening children? Fairly standard sandal stuff. But not wanting to hear the names of someone he hurt or killed? That's a bit different. Almost as if the great naming beneath the hollow hill had a real effect, or that his conscience has finally surfaced after his burning trial. There's no way across, she thought. Lord Beric will catch us for sure. It doesn't matter, Aya told herself. Forrest will find me in the flames. Ah, the irony of coming full circle. We began this book with Aya and Co constantly looking over their shoulders and expecting to see Roose Bolton's men coming to capture and harm them. Now it's the reverse, where Aya fully expects to see her salvation come riding up behind her. Unfortunately for re-readers, we know no salvation is coming, 
and it's an interesting question of how much effort the Brotherhood actually put into finding her. A fair bit, we'd assume, but obviously they called off the search at some point, and again that pesky rain wasn't going to help with looking. It's also interesting to see Aya's faith in the Brotherhood here. Is she merely confident because she's seen them at work already? She's seen Forrest looking into the flames, etc.? Or is she convincing herself they'll come because she's had a 180 in her feelings and she actually wants to see them again, considering how she finished that chapter earlier on? Now here's an interesting quote. Stranger, the hound called him. Aya tried to steal him once when Kogain was taking a piss against a tree, thinking she could ride off before he could catch her. Stranger had almost bitten her face off. Finally, this is what we've been waiting for, we get some backstory on perhaps the Song of Ice and Fire's most famous horse, and certainly the object of Sandal's affections that we've heard about so often. Hearing Sandal's love for Stranger, and the fact that it's apparently reciprocated, is another step on our humanizing Sandor checklist. The adventure across the river, board the water horse, is another elongated example of how bad this rain is affecting everyone. What should be a fairly routine crossing of a river, turns into a fight for survival, with some losers, as if we were battling a storm in the middle of a narrow sea. The economy is just as warped, danger and need have now pushed the price of crossing up to three dragons, and again we have to point out how this truly messes up the status quo. On top of that, we get a superb reminder of Sandor's views on the thin bullshit that is knighthood. He promises a knight's honour to buy their passage, and it works. But why does it actually work? Sandor would be the first to point out it is because of the threat of steel, not because the boatmen are keen to believe in any old knight. The man squinted down at the parchment. Writing? What good's writing? You promised gold. Knight's honour, you said. Knights have no bloody honour. Time you learn that, old man. On the other side of the river, we get to see this laid out even better, as Sandor kills two birds with one stone here. On the one hand, he's commenting on what he thinks of Beric's promises, whilst playing on the fact that if one man can pay with paper, then so can he. On the other hand, we get some classic root Sandor, when he gets down to knights having a lack of honour, and his ever-present need to share this ideal with everyone. We know back from his conversations with Sansa that this is a lifelong thing for him, especially in the need to share the bleak outlook thrust on him by Gregor, but we can also tie it into recent events. Sandor generally feels hard done by by Beric. He won his trial, yet he lost his gold, and we get reminded here how much gold he actually lost, because it is way more than I remembered. He feels like he was mugged, but as he says to the boatman here, Sandor likes an honest brigand. It's not even the mugging that he minds so much, it's the bullshit factor of being told he's not being mugged, his money's just being borrowed. That's what grinds him, that has always been what grinds him. On top of that, Sandor shuts the door on the possibility of rescue thanks to the swollen river, so we return to another core Aya element that we've rarely seen in this book, her list. Before we leave the water horse, Aya thinking about jumping into the river to escape strikes me as another clear comparison to Sansa, because it isn't specifically the hound that makes her contemplate such a dangerous escape, it's the idea of being returned to Joffrey. It's very similar to the scene way back in Game of Thrones, when Sansa considers pushing Joffrey off the battlements even if it takes her with him, because that would be a better option than suffering his cruelty. Now the obvious difference is that Aya is considering this with the belief that she might survive, but it's still interesting, especially given Sandor Clegane's presence in both scenes. Here's another quote from him. Clegane's mouth twitched. Caught you? My brother caught you? That made him laugh. A sour sound, part rumble and part snile. Gregor never knew what he had, did he? Oh, that's bloody sweet. I'll be sure and tell him that before I cut his heart out. So it turns out Sandor was a pretty big fan of irony too, and while he's laughing about it here, the more optimistic of us could begin to believe this is where he takes an ever so slightly softer stance towards, uh, towards Aya. Ever so slight, this isn't the show after all. Because he knows what it's like to be in Gregor's power. He might even respect her for getting away. Then he follows up with this. Because I hacked your little friend in two? I've killed a lot more than him, I promise you. You think that makes me some monster? Well, maybe it does. But I saved your sister's life too. The day the mob pulled her off her horse, I cut through them and brought her back to the castle. This is a pretty good way to sum up Sandok again. Just prior to this, he suggested that I would want to kill Sansa, because as we've seen time and time again, 
His whole shtick is trying to share his pain and guilt around and prove that everyone is just like him, really. We've seen it with Sansa, with Beric, with numerous knights, to be honest. It's a key part of his psyche, probably stemming from an attempt to normalise the pain he knows is so unnatural of his feelings towards his own brother, as well as his constant trying to sift through the bullshit. But the duality comes after, in the quote we just mentioned. First he has to set himself as the big bad wolf, the monster. He has to give an outward display of not caring and being, or being proud of his exploits. This is likely part need to outwardly display strength, a key part of his mental combat against Gregor making him feel weak, and part of him trying to convince himself he feels no guilt. But the duality comes with him immediately following up with good things that he has done. If he's so strong, if he's so uncaring, why should it matter to him that Aya knows of his good traits? Because truly, that's what he wants to show. That's what he wants to be proud of. It's almost as if Sandor is holding the trial for himself. He can't help but point out the good, even if it goes against his brand image. Close this fairly short chapter, we have Sandor finally making it clear to Aya that she isn't being taken back to Joffrey at all, but to Robin Catelyn at the twins. We don't actually get to see Aya's reaction to the news, aside from confusion, but in the short term, she's really landed on her feet. Remember, the whole reason she fled the Brotherhood was because they were going to have a huge delay in getting her home. Now she's just found out she's going straight there, even if she does have to put up with Sandor along the way. But we get to see more of Sandor than we do Aya here, just in keeping with the rest of the chapter. You're worth twice what they stole from me, I'd say. Maybe even more if I sold you back to the Lannisters like you fear. But I won't. Even a dog gets tired of being kicked. So while we see that yes, this is a transactional goal of Sandor's and he gets paid, and he even thinks of gaining a lordship and entering the Stark service full time, which is very interesting, the crux of his argument is this hatred of the Lannisters. Essentially, he's had enough. He already repeats his bugger Joffrey, bugger the Queen, etc, etc earlier on, and lays out here that his principles are actually worth more to him than the coin. A dog being kicked is what stands out to us here, and goes to show that even if the wildfire was the catalyst, it was far from being the sole reason for his departure. We can find much more of that reasoning in his spending a year watching Joffrey torment Sansa. Let's not kid ourselves. Sandor doesn't want to switch to Team Stark because he's invested in Rob's cause. He wants to get paid, and he wants a chance to fight back against the Lannisters, and maybe even Gregor if he's lucky. It doesn't make him a hero, but for someone who was painting himself a monster, and who doesn't care about killing children two minutes ago, it sticks out. Yes, most of his gripes of House Lannister are personal, but let's face it, an enemy to the lion is basically a friend of ours. As he puts it, either way, he wins. And so does Aya. She gets to go home. At least, that was the theory. And that is Aya 9. That is our last chapter for today. A long old podcast, so I won't keep you much longer. A reminder, next week, I'm not even going to bother going through the chapters because, essentially, it's Red Wedding Week. That's all you need to know. I think there's a John in there, a Tyrion at the end to round up six overall, it's going to be tough, so just prepare yourselves. I'm going to let you go here. Just a quick reminder, check out Brendan Beefish's post on Reddit, which I'll link to. Please don't go and have a look at our new episodes, Sporkle Spectaculars, and our Patreon-only episodes. So if you want to look and maybe try and help support the other faces, that'd be lovely. But either way, we thank you for coming here today and listen to me ramble on. I'll be back next week. See you then.